Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Israel Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am in dialogue with Professor M.M. Silver, Professor of Jewish History at Max Stern College of the Jezreel Valley in Israel. We are discussing today his new book, The History of Galilee, 1538 to 1949, Mysticism, Modernization, and War, published by Lexington Books, 2021. It's an honor to be with you today. Thank you for your availability. Thank you for your time and thank you for this masterpiece. Well, thanks for having me. Happy, happy to be here. It's happy to be, I'm happy to be doing this at home in the Galilee and talking about Galilee. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your interest in this topic? Uh, well, as uh, I'm sure my listeners can uh, hear, I don't have a thick uh, Israeli Hebrew accent. I'm uh, somebody who grew up in the, uh, in the U.S., um, happy American Jewish uh, home and came to Israel in my early 20s because uh, uh, I think because of the not the the push factors, but the pull factors, I was very um, um, attracted to the challenge of all of it and very idealistic when I think of myself in my early 20s. It's like you're thinking of a different person in terms of how naive and idealistic uh, one saw the world. Um, and I remember um, walking into a uh, governmental office and saying, you know, I'm here, I'm going to save your country because I'm so talented and important. Where do you want me to, to do this? And they pointed at a map and one was one place was in the Negev Desert, and, you know, which I, you know, immediately ruled out. You know, I'm not going to live in a desert. And the other place was uh, Galilee, which, uh, which is the north uh, of Israel. Uh, um, didn't know very much uh, about it then. Um, lived there when I was kicking around and you know getting myself acquainted with the country um, as a very new immigrant who had to learn the language and uh, you know was working and apple fields on the Lebanese border and just having all these experiences which were you know very much mind-blowing um, when I was in the Israeli army I'd come back to a kibbutz which was on the uh, northern uh, border uh, and then to get myself accredited uh, I think I was running away as fast as I far as I could from uh, having a professorial academic uh, career because at that point in my life I was wondering whether academics really ever get anything done or <laughs> accomplish anything. But everywhere I was going in Israel, because of my pompous uh, personality, people were calling me professor. Um, so then I went down to Jerusalem for several years, which is where I met my wife and my four kids were born and did my graduate work at the Hebrew Univers- University of Jerusalem. Um, but the Galilee becomes part of the story and, you know, to make my whole life story as short as I can. Um, during the peace process in the 1990s, there was a feeling that the average uh, Israeli citizens, Palestinian and Jewish, weren't doing enough on the ground um, to try to translate the ideals which our leaders had tragically unsec- unsuccessfully, but that they were trying to uh, work on from above into a peace agreement. Um, so I got involved in this very special project feeling that um, things, more things had to happen on the ground in terms of a peace culture. 
um, got involved in a very special elementary school uh, called the Galilee School, um, where the idea was just take normal run-of-the-mill Israelis, Arab and Jewish, and not people who are you know, going to dedicate their lives to some very, very extreme kind of lifestyle, but just to create a bilingual school where there'd be two teachers, an Arab-speaking and a Hebrew-speaking Jewish Muslim, sometimes Christian, Arab. Um, and that's where three of my four children uh, went to school. But I always had the feeling in that project that there isn't a history of Galilee, um, um, perhaps because historians found it was too complicated. Um, Christians are very invested, invested in the story of the New Testament and um, um, Muslims and what happened here in 1948. Jews, we have, as we'll be talking about today, have our own history here. Um, so I was very intrigued by this idea of writing kind of a multicultural history of Galilee through all of its periods. I mean, if you're going to do absolutely everything, I would never finish this project. But it turned into a two-volume project. I think readers will be able to see quite quickly that I'm a Jewish fellow and very invested in the Zionist narrative, but also trying to be very, very fair and presenting a, a new kind of history which will challenge people who do Jewish studies and Israel studies, because I'm very much bringing in different perspectives, not just the Jewish Zionist perspective uh, on these issues. Um, you know, one can know all of the languages and all of the, because it, it might, this history divides into different kinds of subfields of history. There's military history and, and theology and, 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 and political history and so many different kinds of things, um, but just did it with a great deal of enthusiasm. My, my academic career has been on very different subjects, American Jewish history, Zionist history, Jewish literature, all sorts of things. This was always kind of a side project. Um, but at some point, uh, also during the COVID period, when I had time on my hands and a lot of draft chapters, um, Roman and Littlefield through Lexington Books, uh, after I sent a proposal, um, was willing to uh, support a two-volume history. And uh, from there, I was all full steam ahead and uh, was very happy to do this. What are the primary themes in this book? What message or messages does this book convey? Uh, that, first of all, that it can be done. Uh, um, in the first volume, and then I say in the introduction to the second volume, I think the history of Galilee is the greatest story never told, kind of playing on the Christmas theme of the greatest story ever told. Uh, I think that there was... Um, um, that this has been um, divided between New Testament scholars who are interested in the search for the historical Jesus. Maybe you'll ask me a question because that's one of the chapters in the new book. Uh, Jewish historians have very much been interested in what were Jews during, during the, doing during the Crusader period in Accra. Uh, what were Jews doing when, when Islam, Islam conquered? Um, Palestinian Islamic scholars are very interested in what's happening in 1948. Um, I thought that you can take all of these voices and narratives and hopefully in a, in a way that's not patronizing um, um, and combine them as a whole around, if you're asking for what the one theme is, the question that I keep coming back to is why did it happen that monotheism 
became divided into three different uh, religions. Um, what happened between Jews and Christians in the time after the Second Temple was destroyed and Jews fled Judea and Jerusalem and came to the Galilee and started to write the Talmud, created a new form of Judaism. And meanwhile, um, believers of Jesus and what became Christianity are in the same region. Why does, I think the original title of this is um, um, where monotheism fractured or something like that. Um, and how people keep going back to that great schism through the modern period. Uh, um, um, so you're writing a history of the Galilee in effect is writing a history of monotheism and trying to figure out, you know, how this, this huge question, can there be a larger question, at least in Western history, um, which is very much based on the belief in one, one almighty, uh, one God. And um, I felt that the Muslim story fits into this also, um, you know, although Islam, it takes six centuries later um, for the prophet Muhammad uh, uh, to come in. Um, looking at this history, and because I don't think this had ever been written in a, and by one narrator's voice, there had always been these collections of Galilee history written by different authors, sometimes from different disciplines, even from different beliefs and different religions. <clears throat> But to write one history and to take it through the different periods, I began to notice that there's this great military history of Islam. And there are these epic battles in the seventh century at, at the Yarmouk River, which is on the um, which is on the edge of Galilee in Syria and the Golan Heights in Galilee uh, today, which is where Christianity after Constantine and Christianity develops a religion, it's where it gets it gets it loses its control in the Holy Land and Islam, Muslim forces conquer. A great battle during the Crusader period and the horns of Hittim happened. Um, Akko in, in 1799 when Napoleon tries to, uh, and, and his forces do control Galilee and other parts of the Holy Land and the Middle East and Egypt and that land. There's this whole um, history, military history of Islam and with that, thinkers and geographers, uh, Palestinian, Arab, um, who come in as well. So um, what I found very curious, I mean, this is a very challenging and very um, kind of exhausting thing to do, although I did it was labor of love. Uh, but the question I kept asking myself is, is how neatly this kind of all fits in the puzzle, the piece of the puzzle coming together. Why hasn't this been done before? So I guess the motto of the book is the greatest story never told. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Yeah, I'd like to, uh, um, um, I, you know, my dream would be to create a new field of Galilee studies, perhaps based on a journal where half of the journal would be very nitty gritty, specialized subjects of different things that happened in the Crusader period in Galilee or in the 1948 war, which tends to be a very political, um, sensitive subject, but very high level uh, academic research. But I would think half of it would be using um, different things that happen in the Galilee, the Sermon in the Mount, which is, I mean, we're looking out my window here and I can actually see one of the hills where it's been, or some people think that it happened, 
um, a piyut, a musical hymn, kind of poetic hymn, called like Lecha Dodi, which Jews say every Friday night on their Shabbat Sabbath services, using these images and symbols, even visual painting, um, slave spirituals from the American South, uh, the Jordan River, using these kinds of images. So half of the Galilee Studies project would be you put Jews and Christians and Muslims and perhaps people who aren't connected to any of that in the same room and you just get them starting to talk about one of these things. Sermon on the Mount, the Jewish prayer service, Lechadodi, and bringing in the different perspectives and being able to use real history, not a useful history to one of these people, but trying to, to come to insofar as we can ever get it, the story straight of what the real history is, but to use that as the basis of uh, interfaith uh, discussion, uh, which I think sometimes just comes, it becomes too abstract and people, um, you know, just saying things which they think people from the other side are like, going to like to hear, but really doing that in a serious way on uh, various history issues, um, I assume you'll be asking this, this new book begins with Kabbalah, which sounds very mysterious and very distant and esoteric to people, but actually to get people talking about this, uh, um, um, you know, learning what, as people from come from different faiths and different national systems, Jews, Muslims, Christians, Israelis, Israelis who are Jewish, Israelis who are part of the Palestinian minority, Palestinian minority can be Christian and Muslim, of course, um, there are differences between us and things that we'll never agree on, but uh, I think that you can also use the history to get some more insight about the things that we do agree on. So I guess I, hopefully that, that answers at least part of your question. For sure. What is the relationship between Kabbalah and the Galilee? In what ways was this relationship different in the context of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his circle? in comparison and contrast with Rabbi Isaac Luria and his circle? Thanks, that's a great question. I begin this book uh, with the uh, Kabbalah. Um, the other volume ends actually a few centuries before that. Kabbalah for listeners who you know aren't versed in these things is just a, 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 what we call Jewish mysticism and it becomes based in Galilee, actually the town, I belong to the town, the municipality, which in Hebrew we call it Sfat. When you're reading it in English, it will look like Safed, I suppose. Um, you know, the question is why um, Jewish mysticism is very esoteric, has different beliefs of spheres of, of light, Genesis, and uh, the Almighty contracting in what we call Simsum and men trying to repair men and women, trying and gender is very important in, in, in Kabbalah, trying to repair these kinds of um, errors or, or um, things that didn't go right in the moment uh, of creation. Um, all of this stuff became very popular in some circles in the world. There are Kabbalah centers and celebrities, Jared Kushner and Madonna, who study Kabbalah. Um, but one of the questions is, uh, but, and also what's very interesting, these very esoteric 
explanations of fundamental questions of religion and of what actual Torah Jewish scripture actually says, um, interpreting it with all sorts of sexual imagery and connotations or attributing numerical values to letters and, and so on. But what's interesting is it stays within the fold of normative Judaism. Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah it becomes another branch with Torah and Talmud. So the question then becomes why, you know, why did it happen here in the town where I'm sitting right now? Um, the bridge to the answer, the largest answer, and if you're asking what the, the overall theme in these books that I've written is, is that Galilee for Jews becomes a kind of post-trauma place where Judaism revitalizes and, and reformats. After um, the destruction of the Second Temple, 66 through 70 of the Common Era, Jews regather in Galilee and they recreate Judaism to become a rabbinical faith based on Talmud. The Mishnah, the beginning of the Talmud, is written here in Galilee. The same thing happens at the beginning of the modern era in the 1880s, um, after periods of revived persecution in Eastern Europe and sheer poverty and the marginalization of Jewish societies in Eastern Europe. One branch of the great Jewish migration that leaves Eastern Europe in the 19th century comes and creates kibbutzes and communal settlements in Galilee and creates this pioneering Zionist myth, not myth, so story, narrative of reformatting Judaism based on a secular national identity. So that's also after, if you want, a trauma uh, in Eastern Europe, just like the destruction of the temple. Um, Kabbalah comes to Tzfat and the Galilee in the 16th century after the trauma of the Spanish Inquisition uh, and the expulsion in 1492, which is a date which our listeners will recognize. After this kind of traumatic experience of Jews in Spain who tried to um, assimilate, sometimes converting, tried to become new Christians and so on, it doesn't work. Um, you know, the Inquisition is you know, before the Holocaust, is one of the great traumas in Jewish experience. And right sort of on the edge of that, uh, in, in the end of the 13th century, um, the cornerstone text of Jewish mysticism called the Zohar is written uh, based on the life of the name you mentioned, Shimon bar Yochai, who was a second century, one of the Tanaim, one of the Jews who were here after uh, what happened in Jerusalem and the failed revolt against Rome, who created um, Talmudic Judaism. But there had always been certain stories associated with what, whom we call Rashbi, Shimon bar Yochai, we call Rashbi here. Um, he had hid against the Romans in a cave with his son, um, very purification of Tiberius, an important city in, in Galilee. So the Zohar attributes um, kind of mystical revelations, miracles with, uh, with uh, the life of Shimon Bar Yochai, um, in some ways very, and very influ influenced by Christianity. A lot of things that are happening to Rashbi in the Zohar, you can see, definitely have parallels to the New Testament story of Jesus and his disciples here in Galilee. Ironically, people think of Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism as being something which is intensely, exceptionally Jewish. 
in actual fact, is something that was extraordinarily influenced by, by Christianity. And that very much happened in the, in the writing of the Zohar. But that's really one of the reasons why I think that the people who are, who are being booted out of Spain and Portugal or their descendants, when there's a new ruler in town in the Holy Land, the Ottoman Turks have taken over from the Mamluk Egyptians and have more of a forthcoming attitude toward the minorities. Uh, but they come to this region because this is where Rashbi, where Shimon Bar Yuchai and the Zohar is based, uh, looking for grave sites, and they talk about that. Um, um, Jerusalem is also a place, of course, where Jews always want to be, but there were various reasons why Jerusalem uh, wasn't chosen as for the place for this revival of mysticism. Um, it was much easier to create an economy in spot based on wool. Um, maybe I'll stop at this point if you want to ask me another question or two about, about Spot and Kabbalah. But I guess that's the answer. The special connection between Galilee and Kabbalah is the Zohar and the legends of Rashbi, which continues to entrance Jews today. The largest annual public event in Israel, a country which invests enormously in ceremonies and public rituals, Holocaust Day, Independence Day. The largest public event is the annual celebration on Lag Omer, a kind of folkloric Jewish religious holiday based on the grave of Rashbi on, on the Meron mountain, which is next to Tzfat. So the same thing that attracts the Kabbalists to Tzfat in the 16th century is what's attracting uh, Orthodox Jews, and not just Orthodox Jews, to Rashbi's grave today, uh, once a year in the spring. What does your book reveal about the biography of Rabbi Chaim Vital? What new insights about his life would surprise our listeners and would surprise our readers? Can you comment on the context and contents of his works Sefer HaChezionot and Sefer HaPeulot, as they are discussed in your book. Okay, we're talking, Jewish mysticism has uh, different uh, strains. They, there was a kind of competition in, in spot. Um, in 1538, there was an attempt to revive ordination of rabbis here in the Galilee. A lot of rabbis in Jerusalem didn't like that. Uh, um, People are coming to the spot. There's a very lively wool industry uh, here. Uh, Moshe Cordovero has his own view of uh, how mysticism works. Mysticism is answering questions of where we come from in creation, um, how to observe Jewish rituals, um, basic questions that we have in all of our lives about sexuality, uh, finding God and so on. Um, the strain of mysticism that wins this competition is associated with a rabbi named Isaac Luria, who's only active, he's not a native of the Galilee and spot. He was only active here for a couple of years from 1569 to 1571, if I have my dates uh, correct. Um, and all sorts of legends about him, um, 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 how he's in communion with other great Jewish mystical and Jewish rabbinical figures through the ages, through the transmigration of souls, how we can read your own soul, performing miracles, exercising Jews who have 
debuk demons inside them, um, all sorts of, um, uh, um, but the Lurianic system of Kabbalah based on Rabbi Luria, based on this very compelling idea of what happens with 10 different um, kinds of beams of light, spherot and what went wrong in creation and how we can do tikkun if you ask any progressive or in some cases traditional Jews in North America today, what really attracts them to Jewish morale, morality, they'll say tikkun olam, which has a lot of anachronistic and distorted things in it. But whatever makes people happy and motivates them is fine with any of us. But a lot of this comes to Lurianic Kabbalah in the 16th century. And spot. the person who disseminates that who popularizes it, who writes it all down, because according to legend, Rabbi Luria had too many, we call him Ha'ari, by the way, in Hebrew, which means the lion. Um, he had too many insights and too much magical, revelatory knowledge at once, so he can't write this all down. So Chaim Vital, who is a spot native, he's somebody from Galilee, who clearly had this kind of searching, uh, wanting to find the answers kind of personality, um, you know, had, had been involved in alchemy and all sorts of things before he meets Rabbi Luria. He kind of wins um, exclusivity rights through a very complicated arrangement to become the person who's going to disseminate this new, very exciting brand of Jewish mysticism. Um, writes all sorts of books for it. The Tree of Life, I think some of our listeners have probably seen these 10 different spheres being pulled up and down. Uh, um, that comes from the kind of basic Kabbalistic, Kabbalistic text that he writes. But he writes all sorts of books about um, Rabbi Luria's and Kabbalah belief. Um, Gilgulim, the transmigration of souls, how to prostrate yourself at a, at a grave and be in communion uh, with other great Jewish figures uh, through the ages. Um, where to find the graves of the great Sadiqim in the north. He, he, he has an amazing passage in one of his books. So he's a very, very prolific writer, and it's meant to be disseminating the faith of Rabbi Luria. During this, Luria, Rabbi Luria and Haori um, passes away in 1571. Uh, Chaim Vital is going to live for another couple of decades. He's going to leave the Galilee, apparently a fairly abrasive guy who, who can't do what Luria was able to do. He can't, he can't um, hold uh, disciples together, uh, although he clearly wants to be one of these great um, uh, mystical masters. He ends up in Damascus. But then he does two very interesting things. He, he writes an autobiography, a kind of spiritual autobiography, which you mentioned, which is called the Book of Visions, Sefer Hazionot, Book of Dreams, perhaps, where you can really see not just what's going on in the soul of this one guy, Chaim Vital, but where Lurianic Kabbalah is placing itself vis-a-vis -vis in Christianity and Islam, one of the incredible dreams that Vital describes is after a thousand years of the rise of Islam through the prophet Muhammad, he has this dream where, of course, his version of mystical Judaism is superior to Christianity or Islam. But you can see that kind of trying to position uh, of that vis-a-vis -vis the other two faiths. But also, where is 
mystical Judaism in the Luria branch vis-a-vis uh, what we call today Orthodox Judaism. Because in Sfat, in the, in, right alongside the birth of Kabbalah, what we call today Orthodox Judaism based on Shulchan Aruch. You know, what do you do when you wake up? How do you wash your hands after you eat? What are the mitzvot commandments? All of that is being written down by this guy named Joseph Caro, who is also here in spot. So where does mysticism uh, place itself uh, in contrast to this more kind of um, ritualistic, regular Orthodox Judaism? Um, you can see in his dreams that uh, Vital is trying to say that it's a superior uh, form of belief even to Joseph Caro and Shulchan Aruch. And also, how does he view his own soul history? It has this incredible um, 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 passages where he describes about how he comes from Cain in the, in the Garden of Eden and who he was before this. Uh, remarkable book. Some people call it the first modern Jewish autobiography. But he also writes his other book, which you mentioned, uh, Sefer Kulot, which is this kind of encyclopedia of early uh, 17th century knowledge in fields of metals, medicine, all sorts of different things, most of it having nothing to do with Kabbalah, although there's Kabbalah gets into it. But just if you want to read a how-to guide of human knowledge in the 17th century, which you, you had that in Europe at the time, and think of where we are in the history of ideas. I mean, Copernicus, the rise of modern science. So here you have this guy who is one of these Kabbalah masters who in his spare time is also writing an encyclopedia. I mean, some of the stuff looks really funny to us today. You know, he tells you about how you can rub a frog or put a bat in a sack and do all sorts of things. But that was the level of, you know, of, of human understanding in his time. But the argument I make in the book is very much in contrast to this idea that these Kabbalah masters are these exceptional Jewish mystics, which have nothing to do with other forms of knowledge and belief systems. Chaim Vital and the Kabbalists are looking for the ultimate answers to life. And for Vital, I'm convinced Kabbalah is just one of the answers. So I think that his descendants today in spot where I live are not just the very orthodox mystics who are praying on Rashbi's grave on Lag Omer, but there are the, also the people who are in the medical school here in Sfat who are part of that tradition of Chaim Vital. Um, I think Kabbalah comes into the world in the early 17th century, late 16th century, at a time when Jews are looking for total answers in early modern history, looking for answers for everything. And Kabbalah should be answered, it should be regarded as one of the strings in that search, but not the only one. Who was Rabbi Solomon Shilumil of Dereznitz? Why is he important? Can you comment on the significance and economic history of Safed's or Sfat's world trade in the context of his life? Yeah, that was very thanks for the question. That was very important for me to do because you, you can, you know, very get get very much lost in the, the mystical, um, you know, doctrines of Kabbalah and the spheres and Simsum, the contraction of contraction of reality. But I wanted to remind the readers that this, you know, these ideologies, this mysticism comes from a very specific time and place. There are economies, you know, all of us who are always wondering where do ideas come from? What's its relation to 
the daily demands of you know earning a living. Uh, Tzfat in the sixteenth um, uh, century is a good place to live. Uh, the Ottoman authorities are much more receptive and much more welcoming to Jews and other minorities than the previous um, Islamic regime, the Mamluks had been. Uh, um, um, Jews do very well in Salonika based on a wool industry. But that's also what's going to bring them into Tzfat. But let me tell you, you asked about this guy, Solomon Sumil of Dresnitz, who writes, I think, five letters or four letters, and he publishes them. He comes into town, you know, my town, Tzvat, in 1607, which is a generation after Ha'ari has lived, uh, has come and gone. Um, and he, he compiles, that's a very interesting moment, because Ha'ari, Isaac Luria, is still kind of alive, but he's also becoming mythologized. Nobody in Jewish history has been more mythologized in this time, except if you want to take Jesus, but he becomes, he leaves the religion, you know, in Christian belief, but nobody has so many legends, magical legends written about him as, as Luria does. So uh, this Solomon Swamil, he writes that down. One of his, his legends of Ha'ari is one of the, the texts of where you learn about what all of these magical powers are attributed to them. But also in his letters, he talks about the Tzfat economy. He talks about figs and raisins and honey. And it's obviously a pretty comfortable, pretty, pretty uh, interesting, lively place to live. Um, and he also gives a very interesting um, survey of um, there being uh, 300 rabbis here and 20 synagogues and 18 yeshiva places of study. Um, and behind it all, less in his letters, but more we know from other sor uh, sources, is this, this pretty much thriving wool trade, uh, textile industry. People are working in their homes in the early industrial you know, cottage putting out system, whatever you want to call it in economic history. Um, um, pretty capital intensive. It's not an egalitarian society of these pious mystics. There was a pretty clear early capitalist hierarchy here, in my opinion. Um, wool was a good, it was easier to do this in spot than in Jerusalem because you have outlets to the sea through places that are in Lebanon today, like Tyre. Um, uh, Sidon, you could you could uh, you could export uh, the wool industry, and very importantly, a lot of it is done in homes and in rivers around um, Spot. So it doesn't become an industrial place at any point, and that's very important for the poetic sense of Jewish mysticism. When people read Lechadodi and there are legends of the mystics who left their synagogues and would recite these chants outside. Tzfat always was able to retain a very bucolic, um, pastoral kind of beautiful on a hill kind of imagery. At the same time, have a fairly thriving economy. Um, and I just think that those are aspects that you really have to take into account when you're trying to think of, you know, where do these belief systems come from? Who was Doña Gracia Nasi? What was her contribution to the history of the Galilee? Well, the first contribution, good question. The first, uh, the first contribution for this discussion is that at last we're talking about a woman <laughs> and not a male, which I, I'm happy to do. Uh, an amazing figure. And I think um, another thing that get, gets lost 
when a lot of things in the Galilee were talked about on separate tracks, um, 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 is that she's a contemporary of everything that I was just talking about. She passes away in 1569, which is just when Ha'ari, Luria, and Kabbalah is going on in spot. She's somebody who becomes connected to the next town over in the Galilee, which is right on the Sea of Galilee or the Lake Kinneret. It's sometimes called, called Tiberius. Um, no women, woman, Jewish woman in um, medieval or modern, early modern times is more celebrated than she is. Um, she was from a noble, aristocratic, um, Iberian Peninsula um, background, married to a banker named Benveniste. He dies, she manages to hang on to her wealth, even though all of these Gentile aristocrats and princes are always basically trying to rob her, uh, manages through cunning and determination to hang on to her fortune, which is a fairly improbable story in itself. Um, but what she's doing as she's coming to the Holy Land is she's financing these escape routes for persecuted Jews from the Inquisition. So that's when Samuel Uske writes his, his famous text, The Consolation of Jews in this horrible post-Inquisition, post-expulsion time. He says that he basically talks about Donna Grazia as we talk about Harriet Tubman in the story of the Underground Railroad slavery as somebody who's just this, this courageous, courageous figure who's, uh, she comes from an aristocratic, not a slave background, um, who's devoting her resources to saving Jews. But she ends up doing all of this in the city of Tiberias. And she's building a wall and trying to create a, um, um, a early national Jewish community in the Galilee. So um, the, these kind of very Israeli proto, very Zionist driven historians kind of described Anna Grazia as a kind of Herzl figure, you know, three centuries before Herzl, Theodor Herzl, somebody who's trying to bring Jews back to the Holy Land and recreate a kind of sovereign national Jewish life. So these blends of inquisition and, and underground railroad and proto-Zionism makes her a highly intriguing figure. And not surprisingly, um, Jewish historians like Cecil Roth, um, have devoted a lot of space to her, a lot of uh, monographs to her. And there's also a Sephardic history project, which has produced a lot of historical novels about Donna Grazia. No. But, you know, one of the great figures in the history of Tiberius, which is here in the Galilee. Who was Fakhr al-Din al-Razi? What does your book report about him? How is the history of the Galilee different because of his legacy? What does your book teach about him in the context of the history of the Druze in the Galilee? Can you elaborate on him? Can you comment on his relationships with France, with Italy's city-states, with the Ottoman Empire? Can you comment on him as a, as a political and diplomatic figure? And can you also comment on him as a Druze figure in the context? Oh, that's a, yeah, thank, thanks for that. Um, I was very happy in this book after writing one volume, and we're now getting towards sort of the middle of the volume we're talking about um, to write about somebody who's not a Jew or Christian or Muslim, because there are other, are other minorities in Galilee today and, and in its history. 
I think the group which uh, outside of these three monotheistic faiths, which has attracted the most intrigue and interest, uh, particularly in the early uh, modern 19th century, when a lot of explorers came and, you know, were walking around in Jesus's footsteps, a lot of them Christians um, were looking at these people. Who are these Druze guys? What do they believe in? And to create more intrigue about themselves, um, the Druze have an esoteric religion, which is only known to the Ukal, these kind of initiated. Um, if, if, if you have been to Israel and come to the north, to the Carmel range around Haifa or to the Galilee and see the male Druze who have a special kind of skull cap, they're part of that religious elite. Um, it doesn't go into the Israeli army. Druze in, in Israel become very patriotic Israelis but there's a religious male religious caste which doesn't serve in, in our army uh, here. Who are these people? Um, who are the Druze? What do we know about them? And then I'll, you know, let me spend two minutes on that. And then I'll spend three minutes on who Fahar al-Din is because you asked about him. And the Druze are a Arab ethnically, but not Muslim religiously group that date back a thousand years. Very easy to remember, you know, when this all starts because their prophet, who was originally an Islam ruler from the Fatimid dynasty based in Egypt, a guy named Al-Hakim, who was reviled by Christians because he, at one point in his life, begins to desecrate uh, Christian holy sites in Jerusalem. And Edward Gibbon called Al-Hakim one of the leading madmen in, <laughs> in the Middle Ages. But he becomes the prophet of these people who spin away from Islam and become the Druze. And he was assassinated under mysterious circumstances exactly a thousand uh, years ago. Um, I'll say one, one quick thing about the religion, but just who are they today? There are about a million Druze in the world. 40% uh, live in Syria, 40% live in Lebanon, where they are one of the very important minorities there who actually have a constitutional role in the political system of Lebanon. And about 100,000, give or take, uh, live in Israel. And, and uh, the belief system I talk about in a bit of the book, one thing is it's interesting, the Druze were persecuted in what they call the Michna, and they actually have an ethic of kind of deceiving your enemy called Takia, which also adds to the whole mystery of who these people are, because you're not sure what, what they're really telling uh, uh, you. Um, um, but uh, they develop uh, their belief system. And in the 17th century, 1607, really when Chaim Vital is compiling his dream diary um, for this kind of 10, 20, 30 year period, you have a Druze prince ruler in Galilee. Galilee has had some of the great his princes in human history, going back to the time of Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian, the time of the revolt against Rome in 66. He was here as a military ruler. The Jews in the Talmudic period in the second and third century had a very important prince here named Judah Hanasi. Uh, Salah Adin was here during one of the battles against the Crusaders. Napoleon is going to be here after Fahar. But in this, this window, this guy who was born in Mount Lebanon, uh, um, the Suf Mountains, comes down in the early 17th century through various connections. Um, 
becomes such an important ruler, ruler in Galilee and beyond it that according to legend, he could mobilize 10,000 soldiers by snapping his finger and I think 800 cavalry men. One of the bases of his strength was that he had spent a period when he kind of lost a power struggle with Islamic tribes. Here he um, fled to Italy, which he, Italy met in Renaissance Italy. And he, he, he actually is connected to Medici courts in Italy where he's influenced by engineering and architecture and art and all sorts of things. And he brings that back when he becomes an empowered ruler here. I'm very attracted, um, in, 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 um, attracted to, to Fafar's story because how do you really judge when modernity begins? What is your standard going to be? New technologies like the steam engine in the 19th century? I think one of the basic barometers is when are people beginning to use history creatively? When are they living in a time when you begin to try to master historical narratives and use it to your own historical, your own political advantage? In all of Galilee history, with all of these intriguing figures who are coming in and out of Galilee, I think Fakhar al-Din, the Druze, is the first person who does that because he invents these myths, utter myths, of who the Druze are. He tells Christians that Druze date back to a Christian uh, French crusader named the Marquis El Druze or something like that. He's clearly inventing stories because he's trying to attract Christian support for his own power struggles. He's winking to Christian uh, aristocrats, including the Medici court, and saying that he's going to lead a new crusade to Jerusalem. But he's using this all to his political advantage, not necessarily in a cynical way, you know, he's just, you know, getting whatever diplomatic advantage that he can use. But he really is this kind of proto-modern figure. And very, very intriguingly, he's Druze. Um, a lot of the stories, let me just end quickly with the Druze answer to your question. A lot of the stories about Druze, about their secret worship of phallic symbols, all of these things are just legends. But to show how intriguing they are, Take a look, you can Google this on Google, Google Images. Take a look at the Druze flag and then take a look at the colors of the Freemasons flag or their symbols. And you'll see a lot of uh, overlap. So the Druze are people, you know, the Freemasons, you know, the first, I think, eight American presidents were Freemasons, right? There, there's Freemason imagery on the American dollar bill. Um, but their colors are taken from the Druze in northern Israel and what's today Lebanon, um, which is very, very intriguing. And Fafar al-Din, he's known to Druze in Galilee today, but he's also considered one of the founding patriarchal figures of Lebanon. Um, so a very, very important figure. Who is Sahir al-Umar? Why is he a person of prominence? Can you describe his biography and his legacy? How is he depicted in Rabbi Yaakov Berav's memoir, Zimrat Haaretz? Zahir or Dahir al-Omer, it depends on whether you're using his name from Arabic or Hebrew or English or, or, or French, because French becomes a very important part of your story. If you want to simplify things, I think a lot of the historians, if there are a lot of historians who are listening uh, to me now, will roll over and object to this. 
Um, but in some ways, you can call him the first Palestinian Muslim uh, hero of modern times. That's a very controversial uh, claim because the question becomes, when does Palestinian nationalism begin? And one of the great Palestinian historians, uh, Rashid Khalidi, doesn't date the beginning of Palestinian nationalism until the World War I era. But there were Muslim Arabs who lived in the land of Israel and Palestine who, who are in some sense, Palestinian, um, the great figure, um, and it's easy to remember Zahir's um, dates because he died in 1775, right before the American Revolution. The great figure in that story is this guy, Zahir el-Omar, Muslim figure who was born in the Western Galilee and areas where I've actually lived, uh, where the villages of Bene and Deir al-Asid are today from the Zaidani clan, um, rises up in his own fam family because they were, um, they were in Multazim, they were tax farmers for the Ottoman Empire. You collect taxes for the Ottomans. It gave you a real step up in the hierarchy. Um, manages to become kind of a local ruler of places in the Galilee. But he becomes an incredibly important figure one of the great, if you, if you want to do a political history of Galilee, you just take the people who, who can be called the Prince of Galilee. He becomes one of the most important of them because he manages to gain a monopoly on the cotton trade. Cotton in 18th century Galilee is one of the leading cotton producers in the world. Really the next great uh, area of cotton production becomes the American enslaved South. So in one of the great ironies of history, you have American enslaved former Africans singing spiritual songs about the Jordan River in Galilee, and they actually are being exploited by the American South slave owners to outrival the cotton industry in the Galilee, which reaches peak in Zahir's uh, 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 era. Um, he does it by managing to negotiate terms with the French traders. Cotton was coming out of the Galilee and reaching ports um, on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea through the French. And Zahir is a very adroit uh, figure and manages to gain a total monopoly on the cotton industry. And through that, something amazing happens during his tenure. The city of Akko which looks like Acre in English, A-C-R-E, which is a port city in the edge of Galilee, which had, become a, which had been a crusader capital 700 years before that. But when Zahir comes to prominence, it had a few hundred uh, residents. Because of uh, the cotton industry, which flourishes during his period, it, it um, reaches a, a population level of 25,000 people which is something which you can't find anywhere else in the Ottoman Empire in this period. So it is utterly untrue to say that modernization begins in the Holy Land because Napoleon comes in 1799. It happens because of enlightened Palestinian Muslim rulers like Zahir, who managed to, to create a creative, uh, prosperous modus vivendi with European traders who were also here. But the modernization, the growth of Accra, for instance, happens through Zahir. Not surprisingly, he becomes a hero in Palestinian history. You can look at a, a historical novel called The King of the Lanterns of Galilee. 
uh, and it's translated into English. A guy named Ibrahim Nasrallah wrote it. Very hagiographic, um, sort of always just a very kind of adoring biography of Zahir. Very interesting to compare Zahir al-Omar to the Palestinian ruler who comes after him, a man named Ahmad Pasha al-Jazar. If you've ever been to Accra, there's a very important mosque there named after al-Jazar. Al-Jazar was the ruler here in Accra in the Galilee when Napoleon tried to conquer it. And Al-Jazar managed to repulse, he managed to defeat Napoleon, which is this great you know, triumph for Islam and local populations against this kind of French colonialist, if you will. But Al-Jazar, in contrast to Zahir, was never liked. Everybody called him here, called him the butcher because he mutilated his opponents, Jews and Christians. Um, he never, he kind of let the cotton industry here fall to ruins because he antagonized the French French traders. His great triumph is he managed to repulse Napoleon, largely because of the infrastructure that Zahir had left for him. But if you want to do kind of an interesting workshop on Galilee history, you can compare Nasrallah's very complimentary biography of Zahir to this an amazing novel that came out about Al-Jazar, written by a local Christian Palestinian who lives in Accra today named Al-Ukhlel, which in Hebrew is called something like Farewell Accra, where he pictures a kind of semi-demonic um, portrait of Al-Jazar. So it shows you that you can be a victorious Muslim in this region as Palestinian, but not be beloved, or you can be somebody like Zahir, um, who was liked by all populations. You mentioned there's a Jewish text from the period called Murata Aretz, which clearly shows that the Jews in Tiberias were very happy with Zahir. Um, he helped them, he gave them protection and helped them you know, live their own lives and, and prosper as well. Very interesting period. Can you comment on the history of Hasidic Jewish communities settlement in the Galilee? When and why did they arrive? Yeah, uh, Hasidic and, and also the other, there are two strains of Eastern European Jewry, which is basically where, East, where Jewry is exploding demographically in the world um, by the end of the 18th century and the 19th century. There are two groups, the Hasidim, who people know today and they just picture as Orthodox Jews who, who look very different from uh, yes. modern secularized yeah. Jews. Yeah, and, not, 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 not to interrupt, but the other group is the Perushim, who you also describe. Right. Uh, Perushim are, are from the Mitnagdim street uh, of their day of different emphases. They're both within what we call today Orthodox Judaism. Hasids are more based on an emotional um, approach to prayer and to Judaism and very much um, um, and groups uh, centered around a kind of a charismatic rabbi of Sadiq based originally on Baal Shem Tov. The Perushim, the Mitnagdim, are based more on a kind of traditional learning based um, on scripture study kind of thing. But they both send groups to the Holy Land starting at the end of the 18th uh, century. Um, some of them do settle in Jerusalem, but there were problems in Jerusalem because of lingering debts and, and conflicts with Ottoman officials. Um, so you have this kind of mini rebirth of uh, Jewish life 
uh, in Sfat and in Tiberias here. Um, the Hasids are very, very, and I think the Perushim, um, why they're called Perushim here and not Nitnagdim is a very interesting question. I don't think I really have time to go in here and read the book. <laughs> I go into it a little bit uh, there. We know a lot about the Hasids here um, because they wrote letters back. Most Hasids stay in Eastern Europe where Hasidic Jewry spreads like wildfire at the end of the 18th century, being in the 19th century. But the ones who came here wrote these very dramatic letters, some of them fictionalized, but it gives a good little, gives a good portrait of what life was like here. Very fascinating. How, how do these people interact with local non-Jewish populations? How do they interact with the Sephardic Jewish population that was here in small numbers, uh, but was, was here? I guess one of the main points I, I was trying to bring out when I described uh, um, um, uh, these groups is when the Zionist pioneers came at the end of the 19th century with a very modern you know, ideology, they tended to denigrate uh, these pre-Zionist uh, religious groups. And I think a lot of the listeners, insofar as they've ever thought about what Jewish um, life was like before Zionism in Israel and the Holy Land, think of these religious Jews who only came, even the way of phrasing is kind of patronizing, who only came to Palestine to pray and to die, to be buried in the holy soil. So, and there's certain kind of mitzvah commandments which have higher value when they're done in the land of Israel. Um, but that's not really true. I mean, these were communities um, that had, you know, they were creating local economies that had a bit of wealth um, um, and were beginning to create a kind of mini infrastructure for a Jewish uh, revival in, 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 in Galilee. And then these just kind of calamities happened in the 1830s. Um, there was a terrible earthquake in Tiberius and to some extent in Spot in 1837. And in 1834, there was a rebellion of Palestinian peasants, um, the Felahim, against a very kind of enlightened ruler here named Muhammad Ali, not the boxer, uh, now being an Albanian based kind of Napoleonic uh, figure here who um, tried to modernize life here and did a lot of good things um, for Muslims, Christians, and Jews, and for outside. Um, outside explorers who come to the Holy Land in the 1830s from America and, and, and Europe, but he tried to draft the Palestinian villagers here, and the North, they hated that and um, began to rise up very unhappy, and this sometimes happens in Jewish history. The targets of their wrath, for one reason or other, were these Hasidic and uh, Perushim, the Mitzvahim, groups that were living there. Um, and so there's this fascinating riots in Sfat in 1834, which I go into in some detail in my book. But my claim in book is that's kind of the beginning of the Arab-Jewish conflict about 100 years before we are accustomed to seeing, to thinking of the Arab-Jewish conflict. Um, and the Jews, these you know, religious Jews, are disguising themselves as Arabs to fight back they're climbing on rooftops and, and you know, trying to arm themselves against this rebellion. They're hiding a lot of money, which suggests that there was an economy, imported capital, and perhaps some capital was generated here. Um, very complicated event, but it challenges a lot of our stereotypes about what life was like for Jews in Galilee and the Holy Land 
before Zionism. What did the report by Menachem Mendel of Kamenetz on the Arab-Jewish conflict in the Galilee state and reveal? Well, this is just what I was just uh, talking about. I think, you know, if I ever get to the point where in different languages doing a seminar on Galilee history, I'd like to sign his book, which is called Korot Itim, um, Chronicle of the Times, I guess would be in English. Um, uh, kind of, uh, you know, a Jew comes from a, from Kamenitz, comes from a Yiddish-speaking part of the old world of Eastern Europe. Originally intended to write a kind of gung-ho, come here and live in the Holy Land and you'll prosper book about what's going to happen to him in Spot when he comes in the 1830s. But he's just living in Spot when there's this, this, this horrendous uprising. And he writes this, you know, grisly account, only about 30 pages in a very readable Hebrew, Yiddish, that becomes uh, Hebrew. Uh, um, um, very complicated trying to figure out how a Jew is perceiving these, these attacks from local Palestinian Muslims. On the one hand, a lot of the images of feathers from pillows, you know, wafting in the air, um, bring these associations of what a pogrom, of what a persecution of Jews would be like in Eastern Europe. But a lot of the scenes that he's describing in this incredible text, not a happy text, but still a very kind of riveting text, um, are very much uh, precursors of what happens to Jews in Spot in 1929, which many historians like Hillel Cohen are claiming is the beginning event of the Arab-Jewish conflict today. But a lot of the images in his report in 1834 are very much, very much like what's going to happen in 1929, which I think challenges the reader, and I flesh it out when I give the details and analysis in this book, challenges the reader to think about what the timeline of the Arab-Jewish conflict is like. I think it goes back many decades uh, before we are accustomed to thinking of it, and it, um, and it doesn't necessarily involve Zionism only. It also involves these Orthodox uh, Hasidic uh, groups as well. Who was Israel Bach? What befell him? Uh, Bach was a uh, printer. He was a uh, um, uh, he, he had uh, the Ottoman Empire uh, because of religious restraints and other restraints. There weren't printing presses uh, here uh, through the 19th century. But here's a guy who tried to uh, um, um, create the Jewish. Uh, printing presses um, um, goes back and forth between the Galilee and, and Jerusalem. But he was here uh, during the these riots I've been talking about in 1834. His printing presses were destroyed uh, in spot. Um, according to the way Menachem Mendel talks about it, the marauders uh, were trying to use some of the metal to use to, to create ammunition and bullets for themselves. Uh, he was injured. It uh, becomes kind of um, 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 loses, um, he limped, uh, he was hurt in one of his legs afterwards. But there were a lot of uh, compensation claims after these riots um, that get connected to the Anglo-Jewish uh, visitor, Moses Montefiore, who was a very kind of powerful personality in Middle East and European politics of the time. Uh, Montefiore was very impressed by Israel Beck. Uh, Montefiore was always kind of impressed by religious Jews, but those who were also trying to modernize their community. So here you have this guy who's trying to bring modern printing. Um, so he 
and through a concession that Beck had gotten from the Ottoman authorities, and in terms of his connection with Montefiore, he gets this concession to create a kind of farm called Jermak, which is very close to Harashbi's tomb, very close to Tzvat and Merom. And uh, it's not clear how many years they farm the land in the Galilee, um, how, many, how much livestock is there. I've seen descriptions uh, of what it's like. But uh, Beck is one of these innovators from a pre-Zionist period who is doing exactly what the Zionists wanted to do and tried to do when they come here uh, half a century later. One of his grandchildren, a guy named Eliezer Rokach, um, is one of the pioneers in the first Aliyah in the 1870s, 1880s, who was involved in the creation of one of the first modern Jewish colonies, which gets caught up in the Zionist narrative of, of the 1880s before Herzl, before there's a organized Zionist movement. But one of these modern Jewish is created by, among others, by Israel Beck's grandson, uh, Eliezer Rokach, and it becomes the Jewish village, which is uh, a stone's throw from where I'm sitting, called Rosh Pina. So there's this kind of succession of personalities and events, which um, is involved in a modernization of the Galilee. How did refugees from Safed go about relocating to Jerusalem? What was involved in this process? Can you tell us about the internally displaced Jews during oh, the- well, a, that, uh, That's just what I can get kind of a quick answer to, that uh, there's a saying that uh, Jerusalem filled up through the 19th century with the kind of refugees of uh, the Galilee. Um, that's true to some extent. I'm talking about from the Jewish point of view of demographic growth. Jerusalem um, is the only place, by the time the British take responsibility for the Holy Land, the time of the Balfour Declaration, after the British conquer um, Palestine during World War I, the Jews are still a, a very much a minority in the Holy Land, maybe you know, 10% of the population compared to the Muslim population. But the one place where um, Jewish life really did grow to the point where it's almost reaching and then passing the Muslim population is in Jerusalem. And the legend has always been that there were these calamities in the Galilee so that the refugees ended up in Jerusalem. And there were calamities in the Galilee in the 1830s that earthquake here in 1837 was just horrendous. Where I'm sitting, half of the town at Spot, which is always based on a mountain ridge, basically just kind of collapsed. I think half of the population of Spot perished. Um, there was this um, conflict with the Palestinians, which I've been talking about, and there was a Druze uprising here in 1837. But it's a bit of a myth to say that Galilee emptied out. It still continued through the 19th century uh, from the Jewish point of view, to absorb Hasidic immigrants, Orthodox immigrants. But they had a very particular kind of demographic profile in the 1840s, 1850s, and 1860s. They tended to be older immigrants without children and people who weren't really getting involved in a Jewish sub-economy here. So when the Zionists came here in the 1880s and 1890s and begin, began the process of creating a modern Jewish state, which we call Israel, they always used to kind of put down these Orthodox Jews who had lived 
both in Tzfat and Tiberias and also in Hebron and Jerusalem. Those are the four towns where traditionally there had been Jewish populations. They call them the old Yishuv, the Zionists. The old Yishuv, Yishuv is just the word for the Jewish settlement in Palestine. And they, the, the put down was that these Jews in Tiberias and Spot were not productive populations. They were living off of charity handouts, which itself became allegedly a very corrupt system, the charity system, which was called Chalukah at the time. But there's you know, more than a margin of truth to that. I don't know about the corruption allegations, but the Hasids who lived in, in um, Galilee before the Zionist era in the 1880s um, did fit this profile of older, less productive kinds of Jews. How has the history and historiography of the Galilee been shaped by the Christian search for the quote-unquote historical Jesus? How did Jewish writers and scholars during the Haskalah contribute to this? How was the Jewish presentation or search for the quote-unquote historical Jesus similar or different from the Christian search for the quote-unquote historical Jesus? And how were both these searches consequential to the history and historiography of the Galilee? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Uh, um, you asked a, a lot of questions. Let me just sort of give it four or five minutes to sort of overview of what the book says. And then, you know, the reader, the listener is interested, uh, hopefully read the chapter. It's a major chapter in this book because the whole issue of, uh, of uh, the land of Jesus, Nazareth and Galilee, um, and how um, people are looking for that and reinterpreting that in the modern period is just a huge, huge uh, story. Um, there is what Albert Schweitzer in a very, very important book, which uh, comes out you know, toward the beginning of the 20th century, he writes a, this sort of standard book of the search of the historical Jesus, which I think today New Testament scholars who very much influenced um, a lot of what I do in the history of Galilee, always reading this, uh, not just in terms of what are they saying about Jesus, but getting very interested in how their methodologies and what they're saying about Galilee. They talk about kind of three stages of the search for Jesus. The third stage being today, where there's more of a reception for the idea of Jesus being a Jew. It's kind of this post-Holocaust rethinking of the New Testament. The second stage of the search of the historical Jesus isn't really based in Galilee. His story, Jesus, of course, is based, but it's more of a theological um, theologians in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, like Rudolf Bultmann, um, are less interested in the historical Jesus. But this first stage, which is from, as you mentioned, the period of in, the age of the Enlightenment at the end of the 18th century through when Schweitzer was writing, beginning of the 20th century, very much trying to figure out, you know, what, what is the human side of the story? Where did he live? What's Nazareth about? What was Jesus uh, like? Um, mostly Christian, Protestant, German scholars, some Catholic who also believe in Jesus as the son of God, as the messianic figures, but also very interested in the historical side of it. Schweitzer's claim was that most of the perceptions of Jesus were anachronistic projections of what these theologians themselves wanted Christianity to be like in their own times. 
So you had very kind of socialist interpretations of Jesus, commercialized interpretations of Jesus. Um, and Schweitzer himself believed that the real Jesus was more of an eschatolo eschatological messianic figure whose values had nothing to do with 19th century bourgeois European civilization. But the point which is important for my book and the argument that I'm trying to develop in this book is that once the key question that I'm always getting back to is why did this happen? Why did Christianity diverge from Judaism? And once you um, leave a racial ethnic interpretation of that, don't forget of course that the 19th century race theory um, was popular also among liberal enlightened people. It, you know, what we call racism today, um, people who were on progressive uh, streams of thought in the 19th century didn't view race theory as, um, as, as, as we think of it as racism today. <clears throat> so one of the theories, of course, is that um, Galilee in Jesus' time was full of a lot of Gentiles, the whole theory of Galilee of the Gentiles, which I talk about in my first volume of this book. So there was a sort of racial explanation that, that Christianity diverged from Judaism because the early Christians and perhaps Jesus himself weren't really Jewish. That's not the view that is popular today in what I call the third stage in the search for the historical Jesus. But I think as the 19th century progresses, people are realizing that this kind of racial ethnic interpretation of Jesus is reaching a ugly dead end because the attempt to Aryanize de-Semitic uh, Jesus, you know, claiming that he's not part of the Semitic Jewish blood and that he really had Aryan blood, um, that's pushed very hard by late 19th century kind of pseudo-scholars like Houston Stewart Chamberlain, and it ends up in the Nazi period. Um, and people don't want to go down that route anymore for various obvious, for obvious reasons. So the question becomes, why still, if you're going to reject the racial, the blood biological explanation, why does Christianity uh, um, um, diverge from Judaism? So then you become um, interested in an environmental, cultural uh, answer to that. And then um, to this day, New Testament scholars and, and people who are less scholarly begin to wonder what was Galilee like? So in effect, on this kind of parallel track, the search for the historical Jesus also becomes the search for the historical Galilee. And you see that very clearly. I think a pivotal text in this is the early, the mid 19th century life of Jesus written by the French Semitic scholar named Ernest Renan, wildly popular book with a portrait of Jesus, which I think is fairly offensive to this day to some you know, deep believers in, in, in Jesus as a son of God, because Renan's portrait of Jesus is um, very kind of pragmatic with hints of even realpolitik in some ways, but, but Renan's, and Renan also is somebody who believed in, to some extent in racial explanations, but he gives this very um, um, environmental that the Christianity develops in Jesus's insights and, and his revelations are very much a projection of the magical, rural, pastoral, serene landscape of Galilee. And his descriptions of Galilee in this biography of Jesus are very, very um, uh, intriguing because there's, you know, I love, I live here and love the landscape here, but he's seeing a lot of things in the landscape which are projections of belief, uh, um, um, you know, really kind of mystifying the landscape. 
but uh, New Testament scholars to the present, uh, Sean Frayne and many people, many of them very much influenced uh, um, um, me and the way I'm writing in this chapter, are um, developed all sorts of different methodologies, literary criticism, archeology, span critical geography, because they're trying to figure out what was here in the landscape of Galilee that you know, would have encouraged certain believers and certain followers of Jesus to break away from Judaism. And also, as you mentioned in your question, Jewish thinkers in the enlightened Jewish 19th century movement, a secularized movement, which we call the Haskalah, basically a Hebrew word for the Jewish enlightenment, they also had to address that issue. They were very interested in reclaiming Jesus because for various apologetic reasons, it's very advantageous to Jews to remind Christians all the time that Jesus was a Jew, but they still have to answer the question, why did certain followers of Jesus break away from, from Judaism? And their answer becomes, well, the Jews who are in Galilee are these Amehaarids, or these kind of ignorant, rural, non-educated Jews who weren't as involved in the, in the Jewish temple um, um, observances in Jerusalem, uneducated, more prone to superstition. I think that the Jewish thinkers who did it in the 19th century, like Abraham Geiger, are projecting onto the Galilee the way they saw Jews in Eastern Europe, because these are Jews in the mid-19th century who lived in places like Berlin or Vienna. So this kind of uh, search for the historical Galilee, which is always to some extent projecting the mindset and values and the scenery, the contemporary scenery of the writer who's looking for Jesus and trying to answer this question of where did, why did Christianity um, 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 branch away from Judaism? It's always a projection of contemporary uh, realities, but I don't think anybody had ever written a chapter like this. The search for the historical Jesus is also a search for the historical Galilee. Can you comment on Joseph Klausner's study of Jesus? And can you also comment on the 21st century work on Jesus uh, by Reza Aslan? How are these works similar or different than, than past yeah, well, studies that yeah, came Buckle your seatbelts because, buckle your seatbelts because then probably enough, these two figures, Aslan and Joseph Klausner, were about as different as figures as you can be. And I'll explain that in a second, are saying the same thing about Jesus, probably for entirely different reasons. Uh, the view is that Jesus was actually a Jewish zealot. You know, these um, the most extreme branch of the rebellion against Rome, ultranationalist Jew trying to protect Jewish honor against these, you know, these corrupting um, uh, sacrilegious influences of Rome who are trying to put an eagle on the second temple. So, you know, you had a division in Jewish society way back when, in 66 uh, through 70, um, about, you know, whether you should do the extreme thing of actually fighting the Romans. Probably not a good idea. <laughs> uh, the Romans never lost wars, as everybody knows, or trying to accommodate with them as the Pharisees, who were the Hebrews, the heroes of people like Rabbi Abraham Geiger, who I just mentioned. But, you know, there had been conflicts and tensions, presumably, with Rome before the Great Revolt. And Klausner 
And Islam, writing from very different periods from very different perspectives, both make this claim uh, that, uh, that Jesus was a Jewish zealot, which is looking at, for instance, I think the most famous saying attributed to Jesus on this issue of where he is vis-a-vis uh, -vis Rome is to, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar and so on. If you read Reza Islan's book, Zealot, he gives a very different interpretation of what, what Jesus means when he actually makes that statement. Klausner was a militant Jewish nationalist. You know, the people who are creating a lot of question marks in contemporary Israeli society from the hard right wing of Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party are in Klausner's footsteps. Uh, um, um, Klausner was the kind of guy who didn't want to hear about in, um, more pragmatic Zionists in the British mandate period who were interested in coming to certain kinds of accommodations with the British. He considered them sellouts. He was a very zealous, militant Jewish nationalist. Um, he was a second temple history scholar. He had actually wanted to, to write um, lit histories of Jewish literature, but he couldn't get tenure at the Hebrew University for, for that. So he becomes a second temple historian. And he wrote in the 1920s a book called The Life of Jesus, which he really pushes this book as Jesus as a Jewish zealot. And he's trying to do that because he just very um, wants people to think that Jews throughout history in different periods are very fiery Jewish nationalists who are fighting for Jewish uh, honor. Reza Eslan, who wrote this best-selling book, I think about came out about 10 years ago, a very readable book. Um, and I, some of our listeners have probably seen him or heard him on CNN or NPR. Um, he also projects uh, Jesus as a, a Jewish zealot uh, um, for reasons of his own. I think that uh, in a multicultural era the 19th, of the 21st century, where um, there's a lot of space in contemporary North American society for Jews to live autonomously as Jews also being very patriotic Americans, uh, of course. I think that's the kind of landscape that Islam is seeing um, where Jews are very interested in, in, in remaining kind of autonomous group in, in, in many ways, but for reasons of his own, you know, certainly not somebody who identifies with militant Zionist ideology. Uh, um, um, Aslan uh, portrayed Jesus as, as a zealot based on different ways he, that he interprets, again, the landscape of Galilee. Um, he thinks that kind of down and out fishermen in, in, in Capernaum um, would be listening to Jesus's messages of, of, you know, changing your life radically. On the one hand, he says that these fishermen had enough wealth um, to have enough leisure time to listen to Jesus. On the other hand, they're not doing so well so they were susceptible to a kind of militant ideology. But, you know, the claim that I make is that every era, for its own reasons, gets the Galilee and Jesus they want. So 21st century multicultural America was, was interested in hearing this interpretation of Jesus as a zealot. And um, uh, Klausner's very militant Zionist milieu in the, in the 1920s produced the same image. How did the first Aliyah impact the social and physical geography of the Galilee? What kinds of conflicts between the new Yishuv and old Yishuv manifested? Well, the, the first uh, Aliyah, which is probably not a term that uh, many listeners know. Uh, first Aliyah, Aliyah is just a Hebrew word uh, meaning sort of ascent. 
So in uh, our Zionist way of looking at reality, we, we think of immigration to the Holy Land in different periods as aliyahs, or moving up spiritually. Um, not everybody in Israel today use that nomenclature. I don't use it in a lot of context uh, when I'm writing about Jewish history. Um, you know, there's a, just a normal immigration process when you come to Israel like any other country. Uh, the first and second aliyah, though, have a very special place in Israeli history. Uh, they're thought of as the first time when Jews are coming back to the ancestral homeland after a 2,000-year exile. Um, and they're coming back to work the land and be productive and to set the, the infrastructure for an um, autonomous, sovereign, at some point, a Jewish state. The founder of modern, modern Jewish nationalism, Theodor Herzl, when he writes his booklet, his kind of manifesto of what this is all going to be about, in the mid-1890s, he calls it the Jewish state. In actual fact, there had been pioneers coming from Eastern Europe 15 or 20 years before Herzl in the 1880s and what's called the first Aliyah. So in a sense, there is Zionists before Zionism. There are modern pioneers who have this vision of modern Jewish revival in the land of Israel, not necessarily thinking of a Jewish state that's very complicated. The Ottoman Turks are in power here. Who knows what's going to happen in what they used to call the great game of European politics, where all of these European powers have their eyes set on, on the Ottoman Empire as the sick man of Europe, as they condescendingly called it. But the first Aliyah is comprised of several thousand Jews from Eastern Europe, many of them actually what we would call today Orthodox, not as secularized and modernized as I think many Israelis who, who learn about the first Aliyah think, are thinking of them. But the difference between them and the Hasidic and Mitnagdim uh, uh, immigration waves that I talked about in the 1830s or the 1770s the difference is the first Aliyah, these people don't want to live on charity handouts. They want to create kind of productive farm colonies. They create them throughout the Holy Land, but um, a lot of them are in the Galilee, like Rosh Pina, which I mentioned before, Mishmar Yarden, Matula, on the northern, on what's today now the Lebanese border. Um, the paradox is, is that they became very dependent very quickly on outside capital, even though they didn't want to live on charity as what they call the members of the old yeshuv, these only Orthodox Jews, they wanted to be modern Jews, but they, they couldn't really hold their own, uh, not just um, in minor kind of scuffling conflicts with Muslim Arabs who were living next door to them, but just in terms of the capital you need to create a farm colony. So they became very dependent upon um, outside capital from, from the Rothschild family and other major Jewish philanthropists uh, uh, from Europe. So then uh, 20 years later, another Aliyah, another wave of Jewish immigrants come, also from Eastern Europe. This is called the second Aliyah. But these are different types of Jews. They had been more secularized, more modern thinking, and more ideological, much more left-wing socialist. Uh, they come from the, in, in 1904, say, through World War I. The second Aliyah creates the infrastructure of what we call Israel today, of a Jewish state. 
Um, I, you didn't ask about it. You asked about the first Aliyah. Um, but just why am I mentioning it now? The second Aliyah is Im very important in the history of Galilee uh, and because it is a Galilee event. A lot of these Jewish pioneers who come in the second Aliyah try to settle in the center of country, the center of the country, in places like Rishon, Litzion, Petach, Tikva, and they didn't like it there. They thought that the first Aliyah settlers there had become very corrupt, um, had no vision, were exploiting Arab laborers. So in 10 years before World War I, there is this kind of um, 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 several thousand Jews that keep saying, come on to Galilee. Just like the American pioneers in the 19th century said, go west. There's this Galila, come to the Galilee thing going on then. And they created kibbutzim and, and all sorts of experimental modern uh, Jewish uh, forms, which become the infrastructure of the Jewish state. David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, he's at Sejirah, which is on the lower end of the Galilee. Um, um, so just as the Galilee, uh, you know, 1,700 years before had been the place where Jews recreated Judaism after the Second Temple fell, and created Talmudic Judaism. And just as, as Judaism reinvented itself as mysticism in the 16th century in Sfat in the Kabbalah, now we have in the first Aliyah and the second Aliyah, the reinvention of Judaism as a nationalist form of identity, which becomes Zionism, which becomes a Jewish state. There are some figures who you describe in some detail who played a significant role in the history of Zionism in the Galilee. They include Arthur Rupin, Itzhak Epstein, Eliezer Rokach, and Chaim Margalit Kalvariski. Who were they? What were their legacies in the history of the Galilee in relation to Zionism? Uh, I'll, try to, I'll try to remember all the names <laughs> that you just mentioned. If I, if I miss one of them, you can find it in the book. Um, Rupin is a, uh, uh, let's start with him. He's an outsider, um, um, German Jew. Um, um, actually, one of the recent biographies stresses how negatively he was influenced by racial theories when he was a university student, kind of at an older age in, in Germany at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, but uh, he becomes a Zionist in, in, in the first years of the 20th century. 1908, um, the Zionist movement for the first time um, opens a settlement office in Jaffa, not in Galilee, where, right outside of where Tel Aviv is, is today. And Herzl, who had died uh, a few years before that, didn't believe in all of this pioneering stuff. He thought that it was just a waste of time if you didn't have uh, permission from a big colonial power from the Turks. So you have these young idealists trying to form colonies, but they're not um, proving themselves to be self-sufficient. They keep having to turn to these rich Jews in Europe like Rothschild. Meanwhile, Rupin and the Zionist movement have sent, uh, I've created this office in Jaffa. So what happens is you get this symbiosis of wealthier European Jews, but who are interested in Jewish nationalism, like Rupin, and these kind of barefoot, hearty, 
self-declared Jewish pioneers, the Jewish, the Hebrew word is chalutzim, who are in places like the Kinneret colony. And Rupin, who actually is buried in Daganya, which I'll mention in a second, and these, these, these Jewish pioneers, the chalutzim, managed to create these new arrangements in the sort of modus vendai, and that becomes the origins of Jewish communal settlements like the kibbutz. The first kibbutz at Daganya is an arrangement uh, which Rupin and the second Aliyah idealists managed to work out. And to this day, Israelis are still dependent, we're still dependent on outside capital, um, the United States providing it. At the Ganya, Rupin and the Zionist movement are still providing outside capital for the first kibbutz or moshav settlements, but it's done in a way which was palatable with the impulses which these pioneers had to still create new realities on their own, on their own terms. Um, that had happened to some extent before this story of the Ganya, which is very much on the eve of the First World War. But about 10 years earlier, um, there had been on the first Aliyah, there had been these impulses to sort of break away as much as you could from the outside capitalists like Baron de Hirsch or the Rothschilds and create self, um, self-sustaining colonies on Mishmar Hayarden or Batula. And the Jewish land agent, a guy named Chaim Margolit Kalvariski, was the one who really managed to um, um, excite these uh, pioneering Jews on the first Aliyah with that. Kalvariski, I thought, demanded, um, he, he deserved a paragraph or two in my book, because he's very interesting as a Jewish land agent, somebody who, with whom, about whom the Palestinians would be very happy because he's going about buying land from Palestinian landlords. But he was a guy who was uh, um, interested in, in helping uh, create these new Jewish colonies in the first Aliyah. But he also committed his whole life to Jewish-Arab understanding and coexistence. Uh, during the British Mandate period, he was probably, probably the most um, energetic, persistent, identified Jewish-Arab coexistence worker on the Zionist landscape. And there was this also, there's also this guy named Yitzhak Epstein, you mentioned in your question. He's one of these second Aliyah, Galilee um, idealists based on Ikfar Tabor, who writes this very seminal essay telling his Zionist comrades, look, you know, we can't keep ignoring it. There are these Palestinian Arabs here as well. He doesn't use the word Palestinian, but there are these Arabs here as well. And we're going to have to uh, really change our orientation uh, toward them as well. So this kind of proto-embryonic consciousness of the problem that Zionist fulfillment, creating this infrastructure for a Jewish state, is also creating friction and tensions with the non-Jewish population in Palestine uh, that you can clearly see in figures like Kalvariski and Epstein how they deal with it and the ironies and the setbacks. I'm going to have to leave that, you know, to go into that, it would take too much time here. Um, but I do go into it a bit in the book. i curious to ask you about what did Fauzi al-Kawuchi mean for Arab history? I, I was presented with a challenge when, you, when you're writing a book like this, which is talking about religions. I mean, 
you know, um, in the first volume, I spend five pages describing Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. In this volume, I spend 10 pages or five pages talking about Jewish mysticism. So then it becomes a question, how are you going to write about military history? You know, keep your readers' interest as well. Um, and then there's another related question, how do you write about the history of 1948, which is this inherently explosive, sensitive subject, because good news for the Jews, and we call the 1948 war um, the independence war, Milchemet Atzmaut, is bad news for the Palestinians. They call it the Nakba, which is a catastrophe. Uh, um, the, the general strategy that I developed in, the, in these volumes is you take, when you talk about wars, you take leading military figures on the two sides and you talk about their biographies and how they got to these sites in Galilee. Um, um, you know, what drove them? What do they stand for? Um, I do that in the Battle of Yarmouk in the, in the seventh century about a Byzantinian ruler, Heraclius, and the early Islamic rulers. Um, so, you know, there's the same kind of rhythm and method of talking about military history that I bring into 1948. So now I get to your question about Yigal Alon and Kauchi. Yigal Alon is the dream, the poster child of the, of the Zionist movement uh, at this point, a very handsome <laughs> figure. I wrote an, another book that I wrote about was about the novel and the film Exodus. And the listeners here who remember Ari ben Kanan, he's kind of this kind of superhero of, of Israeli Zionism. I, one, I think one of the Zionist figures he was actually based on was uh, Ari ben Kanan, was based on was Igal Alon, who was an actual real life figure. He grows up on um, Far Tabor, very kind of um, um, difficult family and difficult father. Um, by the 1930s and 1940s, 1940s, he's in, um, enlisted in the most idealistic branch of the pre-state Jewish army, which is called the Haganah which becomes the Israel Defense Forces, which we have today. The Palmach was this kind of commando unit based on socialist pioneering values, where it wasn't really clear what the hierarchy are, who the officers, um, gender combined women fighting along, young women fighting along young men. But alone, and I tell his whole story in the book, um, becomes the important commander at a very young age of the Palmach in these very decisive value uh, battles in the early part of the independence war, particularly phases of the independence war after the Arab armies invade. Because until April, May, 1948, May, 1948, when Jew the Jews declare statehood, Ben Gurion declares the Jewish issue to be a state, um, then the Arab armies invade. Up to that point, until April, the Jews are fighting a very defensive war. They change their strategy and the, in these climatic moments in May and become more offensive, um, more attack-minded, more successful militarily. Alone is a guy who sent out um, to convince the kibbutz, very independent, hearty old, from a generation older than him, um, members of, of kibbutzim, these older different kind of settlements in the galley. He has to convince them, you know, um, our force is going to come here at this, at this time. We have to combine forces. You have to give me your arms, which you're hiding in these secret caches called slikim in, in Hebrew. Um, and he becomes this very kind of revered, uh, heroic figure of the independence war based on 
originally his fighting and his leadership on these Galilee settlements in the beginning part of the war. Very interestingly, although he becomes a sort of dovish labor party, more on the peace camp, he becomes a politician in Israel, never became prime minister. He became foreign minister during Rabin's first tenure as prime minister in the, in the 1970s, more associated with the left and the idea of giving some land that was won in 1967 back in the context of a peace agreement. Um, but very interestingly, after the 1948 war, he's not um, contrite at all about the Palestinian exodus from the Galilee and other regions. Uh, as most of our listeners know, 700,000 uh, Palestinians left uh, what became Israel during the 1948 war. Uh, many of them uh, from the Galilee. Um, um, I'll, I'll mention that in a second. Um, um, alone never batted an eyelash. My, never batted his, an eyelid about that. He viewed this as you know, a result of war a war that the Jewish side had, had done things to prevent by accepting the UN partition compromise in 1947. And what he did and what, what we call now today the Israel Defense Forces and the Haganah did in the phase of the war were absolute military um, exigencies. It was things that just had to be done in order to win the, in the war. So that's the Jewish side of it. Kauchi um, is not originally a Palestinian figure. He's from the our Middle East, Lebanon and other areas, um, does his military training in the Ottoman Empire days in Lebanon and other places, and fought and commanded units of the 1936 Palestinian uprising against the British and also against the Zionists from 1936 to 1939, had been a very successful military leader during that revolt. The Jews, of course, don't like it at all, but his kind of guerrilla forces managed to knock down some British planes in the late 1930s, which is quite a military achievement for the Palestinians at the time. In the time of the 1948 war, um, he um, became the leader of the largest and most threatening force to what became the Jews in Israel um, that wasn't from an Arab state because Egypt and other Arab states, of course, declared war against Israel. Some of them actually sent real armies to fight against Israel. But there was this also kind of mercenary, voluntary, voluntary force called the Arab Liberation Army, um, which came closest of any of these forces to actually really beating you know, the Zionists. They managed to come down from the north or from Jordan um, and managed to get fairly close to the center of the country in the Battle of Mishmar Ha'emek in the spring of 1948. But Kauchi ends up uh, in Galilee um, leading um, some successful fights against the, the Zionists in, in the area that become, became the Lebanon border uh, at certain points. He became decorated actually after the war and by the Lebanese government uh, for some things uh, that he had done during it. The Jews, of course, and the Zionists um, revile and view him as the absolute incarnation of evil. If you read Exodus by Leon Uris, you can see the most pejorative, angry descriptions of Kauchi that you could possibly 
uh, you know, ever imagined. Kauchi didn't help his historical track record because during the late 1930s and 1940s, he was in Nazi Germany and collaborated with the Nazis to some, to some extent and married uh, a German uh, woman. But if you view his view, his life uh, objectively, um, he's trying to fight for the Arabs against what they consider to be a colonial invading force of Zionism. Um, what you can get a sense of, if you read the biographies of these two uh, characters, hopefully as I presented them in my book, you can get a sense of, you know, who's going to win the war and who's going to lose the war. You know, I can't give you the entire analysis here, but Kauchi, for instance, doesn't have a good relationship with the political branch of the Palestinian movement, which is led by Haj Amin al-Husseini, the Mufti of Jerusalem. They don't get along at all during the war, which is very different from how alone um, 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 is, is positioned vis-a-vis -vis the political leadership of the Jewish state in, in the making, David Ben-Gurion. Ben-Gurion and Alon uh, actually did have some differences, uh, but they're very much a united political military structure in comparison to the Palestinians. Let me just say a few words about what actually happens to the Palestinians in the Galilee, because you mentioned uh, the Hiram operation. By the fall of 1948, when the tides of fortunes in 1948 fighting are very much shifting in favor of the Jews, and it's very clear that the Jews are going to win, um, improbably enough, the way the war was perceived at the time as this, you know, scrappy, small Jewish, as it were, David fighting against these Arab armies, these masses of Arabs uh, like Goliath. Um, that's not exactly the way the forces were actually aligned, but that was a perception at the time. By the fall of 1948, and the UN is enforcing ceasefire agreements, uh, the Jews um, pretty much uh, come to a decision that they're not going just to take territories in Galilee. Uh, but this is the point where it becomes absolutely um, divisive among historians, whether or not there was actually expulsion um, from lands of Israel, different areas. But the, the lands which become associated in the Palestinian narrative of the Nakba are mostly in the Galilee. When you hear Nakba and the stories of a Palestinian family that literally kept the tea, cat, tea kettle boiling and left the keys to the, the house, you know, on, on the kitchen cabinet and had to flee, most of those images are from the Galilee. Without getting into whether or not there was expulsion, how, how, how justified Egal alone was to think of these as just the results of warfare, you know, war is hell. You know, I go into that in the book and try to be very fair and dispassionate about it. But Hiram is an absolutely brutal experience for the, for the Palestinians. 30 villages in the Galilee, particularly in the upper Galilee, uh, were abandoned and lost, literally, you know, just wiped off the map during the Hiram uh, 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 operation, which the, the Jewish army um, executed for like a week or two in the autumn of 1948 and also of four major towns in the Galilee, Nazareth, Tiberias, Akko, and Sfat, um, the Palestinian population in two of them, and, and, and Sfat and Tiberias was entire, entirely lost 
during the 1948 war. So that leaves a lot of questions. I think when you get a sense and when you've read, you know, both of my volumes on the history of Galilee, one of the reasons why Nakba becomes this overwhelming, you know, image in Palestinian consciousness was until 1948, the Muslims, the Arab side, had been the great conqueror and, and winner of military contests in the Galilee against Napoleon in 1799, against the Crusaders at the Horns of Chitin in 1187, um, against the Byzantine Christians at the Battle of Yarmouk in the seventh century, and here that they were you know, completely obliterated uh, in, in the 1948 war. Um, and that just raises a lot of questions, what happened? And we're still trying to sort through those questions today. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about your, what you are working on now and next as your subsequent research? Well, I, I you know, my, my, um, my research is on, on different tracks. I, I wear a different hat and I, I write a lot about uh, Jewish history and, and uh, you know, not necessarily in the Galilee. And I'm working on a book now on, on American Jews in Israel, um, that probably the most political uh, book I've, I've wrote to, to date. And, and I'm definitely not going to be a, a shrinking violet about the various issues. Um, um, some of that kind of branches from the research in this book, um, per, particularly in terms of how evangelicals uh, relate to Israel today. <clears throat> and I have a different way of looking at that based on a lot of the ways I looked at how Christians um, viewed Galilee in the, in the modern era. But in terms of getting back to this Galilee stuff, and I'm already, you know, you know, juggling a lot of balls in the air at once, um, there are a couple of projects that I have yet to do on Galilee. Um, you know, the readers' reports for these two volumes, one of the readers uh, said, you know, why did you write a third volume? And, you know, after, after producing a thousand, you know, 600 pages or whatever on this, somebody saying do a third volume, you know, I almost fainted. Um, but I want to do um, a monograph on a Galilee in the mandate period, uh, because there's a lot of stuff that I've seen about what happened in Tiberias uh, uh, and in other areas where the British were here in the 1920s and 1930s. That'd be just a very kind of specific empirical history. But there are two other projects, um, maybe a little interesting to uh, more interesting to listeners or who you know are more interested kind of in a broad view of this subject. I want to write a book or edit a collection on Galilee and the arts. I want to talk about musical spirituals of Galilee, paintings of Jesus. It's just so interesting. You know, I'm a big kayaker and I kayak in the Sea of Galilee. And then you look at these great paintings of Jesus on the storm of Galilee. One of those are famous because it was stolen by Rembrandt. Um, um, you know, it's very interesting how Galilee was pictured um, visually in painting. Um, I want to look at um, uh, um, uh, fictional prose, fiction uh, portrayals of Galilee, I images of Galilee in the arts. That's a book, um, you know, if God willing, maybe I'll have the energy and the time to write it, but at least, um, you know, to, to edit or at least put out a source book on it and also include um you know, the kind of religious sources that I go into in these two volumes, like the Sermon on the Mount 
or Lechadodi, the Kabbalistic hymn that I mentioned today, but to go much more into that than I was able to do into these two volumes, because the religious mystical things are also connected to arts and, and culture. And the other thing I like to do in Galilee, you know, hopefully I've, I've never put out a journal before. It sounds like quite an endeavor and quite pretentious to, to talk about before you've done it. But I would like to see a, um, you know, Jerusalem has journals, a Jerusalem quarterly. Other regions in the world have, um, have magazines or journals. I think there is very much um, um, a reason to put out something called the kind of a Galilee studies journal. Uh, again, half of it would be based on very nuts and bolts, um, specific histories of incidents and regions in Galilee. Uh, but I would like half of the essays and articles in that to be based more on using themes and images of Galilee, but more talking about them in a context of interfaith and dialogue. Um, um, as I say at the end of the second volume, the volume we talked about today, um, I don't, you know, the contemporary reality in Israel may not be as bleak and horrific as some of listeners who only see, you know, Israel today and CNN when there are terrorist incidents and wars. It's not as bad as that, uh, but can, it can be a lot better than it is now. And I think one of the, the ways to get there is to, to look at the way we educate ourselves and talk about religion and national history in a, in a different way. And I think Galilee's history can be useful to that as well. To our listeners, I'm your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. Today, I have been in dialogue with M.M. Silver. We have been discussing his new book, The History of the Galilee, 1538 to 1949, Mysticism, Modernization, and War, published by Lexington Books, 2021. Professor Silver is professor of Jewish history at Max Stern College of the Jezreel Valley in Israel. Thank you.